Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here. Yes, it is not a mistake. We are here a day earlier because Mr. Hamilton has not given up those dreams of making it to the NBA despite his advanced chronological challenges <laughs> <laughs> or something. But but you did say that you're going to shoot some hoops tomorrow night or you got like a, like a game going on. So I'm just like, it actually works out better to do the show this week, even though I kind of rolled into the studio here later than usual and then found a bunch of hardware missing for some odd reason. But Better late than never. We're here. You got a big smile on your face, Mark. And, you know, just like that, faster than Max Verstappen disappears when he passes a Mercedes, we are already into the first of two extended breaks in the 2023 Formula One World Championship. But before we get into that, Mark, how are you doing, buddy? I'm, I'm doing well, so I, I don't think I should apologize for this. People are probably pretty happy, but you get your episode a day early this week, and yeah. it's also it's also obviously a holiday up here in Canada and probably in a lot of the world, so happy Easter to everybody that, that celebrates that holiday, but tomorrow, Thursday night, I have I have a basketball game, and I'm in this, uh, I'm in this ad- local adult league here in Coquitlam, and uh, there's some very, very talented high school seniors, so 12th graders that play in this league as well. And they're phenomenal. And last week out, I took to asking one of them because I'm like, man, this kid's this kid's awfully built for 18. I'm like, dude, how old are you? He's like 13. I'm like, these high school seniors that I <laughs> thought I was playing with that were, were were cutting me up on the court were 13. So I felt significantly wow. older than wow. I should have. And also shout out to Vetti at Vetti because he reached out to us about a comment that I made on the podcast last week. And he said the proper term that I was reaching for, that I was looking for last week was perpetrating, which means to wear two different labels of athletic apparel at the same time. Example, I'll use it in a sentence, look at that fool wearing an Adidas sweatsuit and Nike kicks. Why is he perpetrating? So that is uh, <laughs> that is the perfect use. So shout out to Vetti for sharing because I didn't know that term and I, I appreciate you educating me because I will use it all the time now. That's hilarious. That's awesome. Hey, not only is it um, Easter weekend, uh, as you mentioned, Mark, we're also in the middle of Ramadan. 
Passover Absolutely. begins tonight, so a lot of uh, very important, uh, you know, feasts and you know, you know, things, observances going on. So, thinking, wishing everyone who's observing Absolutely. something special, Absolutely. you know, all the very best at this time. So, yeah, wow. Like I was just saying, it's hard to believe that we're already three races into the season. Of course, we would have just had a week or so off before we would have had uh, the Chinese Grand Prix at Shanghai. That obviously got uh, got got canceled and it didn't get replaced even though there was a whole number of tracks that i'm sure would have been willing to fill in had the opportunity lined up uh, properly it hasn't so we've got like what was it a four-week break before we we head back to baku and azerbaijan in what the first weekend in may so it's kind of strange and i'm not all that disappointed in a way because i feel like we covered a lot of ground in those first three races in Bahrain, in Saudi, and then just uh, this this past weekend as well in Australia. So I feel like it's a good time to kind of catch our breath and reflect and just kind of go back and digest what we've seen over the past, is it six weeks already? It, it's, I you know, which is, you know, I can't comprehend that because it doesn't seem like that long ago when we sat down to do our season preview and talk about car reviews reveals and all that stuff but but here we are hammy we're we're at the the first i guess this is an unofficial extended break just kind of brought on by the cancellation of china but be that as it may we're gonna sit back and relax and kind of chill for the next couple of weeks but well how do, how do you feel like uh do you think that do you agree with me that we need some time to reflect on what happened through the first couple of races of the season yeah, I, I do. And and I think that's a really great place to kind of kick off the podcast because even though we're only three Grand Prix into the season, we, we've learned a lot, right? Like we had that yeah. rapid fire winter testing in Bahrain and then we had the Bahrain Grand Prix and then two weeks later and we're Saudi and then two weeks later we're in Australia and we've got this break. So there's been all kinds of development and no shortage of things to talk about on and off the track. So I don't object to having a couple of weeks off to kind of, like you said, catch our breath and and calibrate our expectations for what Baku could bring. Because don't forget, and we'll talk about this later in the podcast, Baku is a sprint race this year as well. So when we go into Baku, which is already one of the... One of the, I don't want to say dangerous because it's not dangerous in the sense that we've seen, obviously, the horror that would be a fatality or an injury, but it's a, a track that has taken taken many cars with it, given that it's a narrow, mm-hmm. confined, high-speed street circuits with questionable traction in certain places. So, you know, when we do return to Grand Prix racing, it's going to be a fully loaded Grand Prix weekend in Baku. But I'm cool to sit back and kind of reflect. And I'm I'm very curious to know what your general thoughts are so far in the championship, if that's the direction that you were hoping to go. Yeah, let's do that in a second. Uh, Before we go too much uh, further, let's uh, just kind of go over a couple of pieces of uh, housekeeping. First of all, just want to give a shout out to the Race Weekend magazine. So the Race Weekend, R-A-C, sorry, R-A-C-E-W-K-N-D.com. Use our promo code ScooteriaPod to receive 10% off your subscription. Also check out uh, RacingExclusive.com. Tease and his crew have provided us uh, this wonderful autographed Max Verstappen helmet for the winner of our fantasy league this uh, year, complete with COA, and that's awesome. And jealous that uh, we don't get to keep that one ourselves. Although the, whoever you know, wins it will obviously deserve that uh, quite a bit. Mark, even though 
we were just uh, talking about we've got this break coming up, and that's why I thought it'd be a good point to jump into it, is before we kind of sit back and reflect on what's transpired over the past uh, month to six weeks, we can also look ahead because, as everybody knows in the community, that even though there might not be any action on the track, doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing and we go into hibernation because April's going to be a fairly busy month. So why don't you just bring the folks at home just up to speed with what we've got planned over the next uh, three to four months? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, if you if you look at what we've committed to doing this year, we want to deliver two episodes a week. And some weeks you're gifted with a third or um, cursed with a third, as the case may be. <laughs> but, uh, but we always have our Friday news show. And if it leads into a Grand Prix race weekend, you also kind of get a little bit of a race review. And then every week, race weekend, we do a race review on the Sunday. But on weeks where there isn't a Grand Prix, we always do an extra show on Sunday. That could be an could be a news show, that could be a mailbag show, it could be a hybrid of the two. So knowing that we don't have any Grand Prix coming up, we're going to do a couple of special things. One, we are going to continue doing our news shows every single Thursday. <laughs> uh, but we have a couple of cool things coming along as well. We have a way too early report cards episode dropping with Sam Cooper of Planet F1. We have an interview series episode coming up with John Orovitz. He, of course, is the legendary writer of Indie Split, the book that documents the divorce, the messy divorce that ultimately led to that long, untenable battle between IRL and Champ Car. So I'm super excited about that. And then next week, my friend, you and I are going to sit down with friend of the show, Seth Whiteberg, and we are going to do a special review show on the 2013 Ron Howard Formula One flick rush so i would encourage everyone if you haven't seen it or you have seen it it's in the past go and watch it this weekend because then you'll have it front of mind when you sit down next week or the week after to listen to the rush episode and i did do a little bit of investigating and at least up here in canada it is currently available free on amazon prime and in addition to all of this we also have an episode and i i've got the date but i don't have it in front of me adam burns of the dnf1 podcast is going to join once during the spring break as well so i promise you there's going to be tons of fun content coming up and mr daily i'm also knowing knowing what time of year it is for you also going to get you a little bit of a break so that by the time <laughs> by the time we hit may june and formula one's back in full swing we can be doing maybe four or five episodes a week together Oh, we could literally do a show like we could probably do like a 30 minute hit every day every day like, like, every seriously, day seriously we could yeah yeah no I, question I no could. question yeah, except for maybe Saturdays and Sundays, which maybe might, might not be the best business decision because that's <laughs> typically when the most important things happen, especially on a race weekend. But yeah, yeah totally. we, we literally, if we had the capacity and, and the you know the openings in our very busy lives, we, we could probably sit down and easy bang out a 30-minute show a day. So who knows? Powers that be, make it happen so that you know, Hammy and I can, can, can live the dream, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Except for the people that are cringing right now, thinking to themselves, "The last thing I need is more of these guys <laughs> showing up five to seven times uh, per per week." But, anyways, uh, let, let's not uh, curse ourselves here. So, the question that you posed to me just to, before we jump there was just my overall thoughts on the season so far. 
Yeah, it's and, and I have to chuckle because uh, you you and Sam are going to sit down and do the way too early report cards, which I think is uh, you know a, a really kind of a cool and funny thing to do, especially because it is way too early to 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 make a lot of these judgments. Because like after the first race, everybody just assumed that that Max is going to blow the carbon fiber off of everybody else and walk away this season, which you know is is probably a, a fairly good prediction for the year. But, you know, it, it's funny, too, because we see a little glimmer of hope in the, this past weekend from Mercedes and Lewis and, and George, even though, you know, they, they've had some mechanical issues, of course, uh, you know, George's engine let go. And then uh, with, uh, with with Aston Martin as well. But the thing is that they're 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 better and Aston Martin this year is markedly better than they have been well ever since the rebrand from from Racing Point but Red Bull is just so that so much further ahead but it's kind of funny when the way that I kind of go back and forth with that you know that inner dialogue I have with myself when I'm thinking about what's happened is like oh Max is going to run away with it's like but oh no look at Fernando and look at Lewis and and look at George you know it's like maybe we'll have a season on our hand and so you know I kind of go back and forth but I'm, I'm mixed. I, I would say that my opinion is mixed at, at at the moment. Is as much as I would like to see somebody challenge the Red Bulls. I mean, they've just designed and built an absolute beast of a car that nobody else can can keep up with. And I mean, Max is driving as as good and as as he ever has. Sergio's driven pretty good as well in the first couple of races. I, I think that they've just got so many good pieces in place throughout that team in the car out of the car on the pit wall in the garage back the at the factory in Milton Keynes and it is just so difficult for other teams to try and catch up even when you look at like Aston Martin who have like made leaps and bounds and in, in, in gains since 2022 but I'm you know I'm I'm optimistic that you know what we're seeing from Aston Martin and from Mercedes might give the Red Bulls a little bit more of a run for their money, but I think they they still, you know, having said that, they will still have the the advantage over the other teams. How about yourself, Mark? What, what what's your thoughts? Three races in, overwhelmingly still optimistic for the year that we're still going to see some some unique and some special moments. And obviously, in a twenty three race calendar, we probably should because the 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 data. Uh, kind of sides in in favor of some cool stuff happening, but you know what? Obviously, Red Bull is is dominating, and maybe we could have expected that. And I've got a little chart here that we pulled up from at one hundred seven percent F one. But some of these numbers are distorted for a couple of reasons, which I'll get to. But through three rounds uh, last year. Red Bull had 55 points. This year, they have 121. Last year, through three rounds, Aston Martin had zero. They have 65 this year. Um, Mercedes had 65 last year, 56 this year. Last year, Ferrari had 101. And this year, Ferrari has 26. Now, some of those numbers are a little bit distorted because, of course, Red Bull had that double DNF in the first Grand Prix of last year. So yeah. that, that number yeah. is, is a bit exaggerated. The Aston Martin one is purely unequivocally incremental that obviously you know i think some circumstances the charles leclerc dnf and obviously the outcome of the the race last weekend in australia definitely aided 
uh, Fernando Alonso in terms of being able to retain a couple of those podiums, but still 65 points, 40 points, 20 points. It's all incremental because three through three races last year, they had zero points and a Mercedes sitting on 56 points versus 65 last year. The reality is if, if George Russell didn't have bad luck in this last Grand Prix, maybe they're sitting on 70 and they're outpacing last year. Ferrari, you know, that's probably the team that I'm most sorely disappointed in this year, just because yes, we've seen yeah. so many flashes of what we saw last year. And and again, at the same time, you know, when I when I lean into my criticism of the Scuderia, it's it's sometimes about strategy and it's sometimes about mechanical reliability, but oftentimes it's just straight up about driver error. And we we saw that with Charles Leclerc this race weekend. We saw this with Carlos Sainz. You may not have liked the penalties, uh, but ultimately the stewards decided he he was he was deserving of a five-second penalty, which cost him points, that it just seems like everything holistically is 360-degree problems with that team. But you know what? I, I Red Bull's probably still better than I expected them to be. But at this stage in the competition, I'm still very excited about what Fernando Alonso is doing. And like you said last week, and, and I thought this was a great point, I've never cheered for Fernando Alonso before. And I was heartbroken <laughs> on Sunday thinking that maybe he was going to lose that podium because I was so emotionally yeah. invested in the idea of having three former world champions on the podium together, especially given the fact that Lewis has had so much vitriol and, and, and venom towards Fernando Alonso over the year. And they were nothing but gracious towards each other. And of course, Lewis has had this really, really, uh, I would say, uh, aggressive, uh, aggressive is not probably the right word, but has a really firm uh, kind of battle with with Max Verstappen over the last couple of years. And and at the same time though, like I, I get excited and maybe I was overly excited about where Mercedes was seemingly putting their car after Melbourne because I read a great piece in planetf1.com on the weekend that kind of brought me down to earth a little bit. And it kind of spoke to the fact that last year, Brazil, where George Russell took sprint and he took the race, it was kind of an illusion. And it was kind of an illusion for a couple of reasons. And one of them was Red Bull just didn't have the time during the sprint race weekend to get their setup dialed in for that car. And I think that ultimately greatly benefited Mercedes. And if you look at the track in Mercedes this weekend, the cooler conditions certainly helped Mercedes. Um, and furthermore, the fact that they have an ultra high downforce car also significantly helped in qualifying, which put them in a really great position at the start of the Grand Prix. So while I was very optimistic about this team coming out, coming out of Australia, I've I've kind of sobered up a little bit, so to speak, on the Mercedes piece. And I've kind of walked back some of those, some of those thoughts. Again, I'm I'm hoping that they're making strides, not because I necessarily invested in Mercedes for any reason, but specifically because I want to see multiple teams put a fight to Red Bull. And I think if Red Bull has an unfortunate weekend, if they have a DNF and a collision, like maybe there's an opportunity for Mercedes or Aston Martin or even Ferrari to steal a race victory this year. And I think that would be, I think that would be absolutely thrilling. Yeah, I, I, th I would agree with that. I don't think that it's going to be one of those seasons where Red Bull are going to win every single race. Like we've seen other teams do in the past when we've seen Mercedes dominance, McLaren dominance and, and Ferrari dominance when they've all been at their, their, their peak at different, different eras of Formula One. You know, obviously, you might need like a, a little bit of a help, but it was it was very very interesting at the start of that race to see Max fighting off and losing to bo both George Russell and Lewis Great Hamilton point. at the start Great of point. that race, right? You know, and, and I think and and I, I think that kind of you know dial it back twelve months ago. I mean, 
I think the entire F1 world was wanting to see that Lewis V Max rematch from 2021. Absolutely. Especially with all the uh, controversy that we saw in Abu Dhabi way back. And it just, uh, and unfortunately, it it never really materialized because Red Bull was that much better last year and Mercedes just, uh, they they weren't able to keep up with them. So when when we saw that, 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 that Max just, he had to work for it. I mean, ultimately, he, he deserved to win in Australia. He had had the best car he didn't put a wheel wrong uh and he he was full value for that uh, that win right but you know it's despite all the drama i mean he was the one driver that probably had less drama than mostly everybody else over the course of that was it what 58 laps in australia so but um yeah it it, I, I was on the edge of my seat watching him fight with uh, with George and Lewis, but after they passed him, the next immediate thing was like, well, how long is this going to last? Like, you know, the, the race order is going to settle down. They're going to get into their groove that maybe Max had an uncharacteristically bad start, but, you know, he's he's going to he's going to find his groove in this race and when he does it's just going to be a question of time before he gets lewis before he gets george and before he's you know leading this race which is ultimately what happened despite all virtual safety cars and safety cars and red flags i mean when he passed them i mean it was incredible just like how quickly he extended that uh, that gap between them and then again sort of stabilized it and then of course it kind of got compressed with all the the drama at the the end of the race but yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? I completely agree that that uh, that performance of Max Verstappen and really the four DRS zones this weekend absolutely benefited Red Bull, but they didn't need it. To be fair, like as a handicap, you probably could have taken the DRS zones and the DRS activation points away from Red Bull and they probably still, you know what, especially over race wasn't disrupted by the red flags and the restart. I still think that car is, has enough pace that they could probably still take a race victory and probably take a race victory easily. But like you said, you get through that turn nine, 10 complex at Albert park and you have that one real overtaking that real one overtaking section that he just, he just stormed past Lewis. Like Lewis was smart. He was not going to defend because there's no reason to defend and eat up your tires, but that car is absurd. And I, I still, I still think, and I hate that term sandbagging, but I still think that they're very moderately managing their pace because they don't want to show their card. And there's been so many stories in the last few weeks about the fact that Red Bull's dominance this year may be too much and it might might require kind of intermediate, not intermediary, but interventionist steps from the FIA to to narrow the gap and claw back some of their advantage. And, you know, it was it was always believed that when the FIA mandated changes to the floors heading into 2021, it was an effort to kind of bring the Mercedes back to the pack a little bit. And, and if that was the case, it certainly, it certainly helped. But like you said, like you and I talked about last week that I don't like that idea. I, I think it undermines the, the sporting integrity of the championship. And that if you start implementing technical directives and changes to the regulations in season to slow down a team, I think that's, I think that's really unfortunate when you talk about the integrity of, of a championship that, Hey, you know what, set out, set out the regulations. And if you need to make technical directives and regulations in season on safety grounds, I totally get it. But ultimately yeah. like these teams all agreed to the technical regulations. They all agree to the sporting regulations. If it doesn't look good in season, talk about changing them for the next season that Red Bull have done everything. And again, we can go back to the cost cap breach and things like that. But again, they also, they were also penalized as per 
the as per the regulations. Um, so you can't hold that against them. And maybe honestly, more teams should have breached the cost cap if it's believed they they got a sporting advantage out of that, but they didn't. Um, and ultimately, the teams were the ones that agreed to the very light sanctioning that was a result of that cost cap breach. But ultimately, Red Bull has been phenomenal, and I just I just hope this season the storylines I think that I'm going to be looking for really are what else can Aston Martin bring and. I said this last week as well that that P4 really flattered Lance Stroll. And I, I got to think this point, four, five, six weeks out from that bike crash, that he's got to be 100% healthy at this point. And if he is, and, and Fernando Alonso is still running circles around him, it really speaks to the quality of Lance Stroll as a driver, but it also speaks to the sheer competitiveness and hunger of Fernando Alonso in his early 40s, which is which is admirable and a remarkable story and something that we all want to watch this year. Because can you imagine, man, can you imagine Fernando Alonso? And 100% could happen if, if the circumstances were right. Can you imagine what the what the reaction would be to a Fernando Alonso race victory this year? Like just picture <laughs> that for a minute. Yeah, you know, and and I said last week, I, I find myself very torn te- cheering for Fernando. I mean, nothing against Max, nothing against Lewis, nothing against uh, Ferrari and, and all the other teams. It's just that uh, that that I'm I'm really enjoying as as conflicted as I am to be, you know throwing my support behind Fernando Alonso, which, like I say, is a driver that I, I both loved and hated passionately in, in both directions at various <laughs> times in, in the 20 years that he's been in Formula One. So I, I'm struggling to reconcile that with uh, with myself. But it, it is great, though, to see that uh, that, that Aston Martin has uh, turned this thing around. They've got a, a competitive car. And it, it's cool to see another team mixing it up there at the, at the front and just before i throw it to a break here happy i was just kind of thinking too we were just talking about the, the cost cap that do you think that uh, that there must be someone in brackley or woking or grove or marinello or silverstone or wherever thinking how can we file this x under catering Yes, and find yes. some performance yes. advantage. Yes, <laughs> yes, that, that that was like you know the the, the big thing, right? That uh, with Red Bull and their cost cap uh, breach was like they were just always like catering costs and stuff like that. Anyways, I'm being a little bit cynical, so let's let, let's just park it there for a moment. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back back on the flip side, so don't go away. We'll be back in just a very short moment. Okay, welcome back to the pod. So here we go. Just uh, before we jump into some of the news here, so a couple of uh, interesting uh, little stats that uh, you've uh, pulled out here. So the first one comes uh, via Dank Wings on Reddit that the Australian Grand Prix marks the 34th time that Lewis and Max have finished 1-2 in a Formula 1 Grand Prix. That is the most of any driver pairing in Formula One history. So more than Senna and Prost and more than Schumacher and probably everybody else. But uh, that that's a cool stat. I, I had no idea that that these two have really been going at it uh, so closely over the last uh, several years. That is a very, very cool stat, Mark. I oh, just the noticed. Head already or- <laughs> no, no, no. But I just realized yeah. you might be looking at the outline for a Sunday show. 
Oh, really? Oh, I'm looking at the wrong one. Okay. <laughs> so I better go so back and open, while, up the, well, open up the correct and, one. Yeah. And let, let me, let me, let me kind of calibrate this for everybody at home. Daily has an obscenely busy work week, and I've probably peppered him with 550 links, videos, chat requests, voice messages, and show outlines during his WhatsApp. So he's been insanely busy. <laughs> the poor guy opens his WhatsApp and probably gets 100 messages from me at a time. And I had a couple of minutes earlier this week. So I decided like, you know what, I'm going to start mapping out the shows for the next couple of weeks, which is probably not where I should be, uh, especially given I have a family at home. So I apologize, my friend, for not clarifying that. But while you're bringing that up, we do have a listener question. Yep. I thought this would be a perfect time to bring that up. But the Nige asked, listening to last night's podcast at work right now, and I had a thought, what if the winning team didn't just lose wind tunnel time, but had a smaller cost cap for the next year? Take two or three million off for the following season. Would that amount even would that amount even do anything? Is this a terrible idea? I haven't a clue. Curious to hear what you gentlemen say. Thank you. Love the podcast. So I think the timing of this question is perfect because we're just kind of on that conversation point a couple of minutes ago. And I think Maybe I'll take a quick stab at this and then kick it over to you. But I think his I think his question is really good, which is um, rather than just wind tunnel time. And ultimately, if you look at if you look at the regulations, there is a whole variety of different penalties that can be applied. And last summer, when we were going through the whole cost cap breach fiasco, one of the comments that I made at the time was that the rules are very ambiguous. And there's a huge variety of different disciplinary options available to the FIA. And I, I believed at the time that the teams weren't firm enough and clearly identifying what the specific di- or kind of what the specific form of discipline should be for each variation of breach. And ultimately, the wind tunnel piece was was ultimately what was applied. Um, it was nothing meaningful. But I think the question here is a good one, which is, hey, what if you took three million dollars off the cost cap for the following year? Would that be meaningful. And I would say that, yeah, it it probably would be. I think the challenge though, is that you never lose the advantage that you gained by breaching the cap to begin with. So you've already got an inherent advantage from the cost cap breach. As far as I'm concerned, the easiest way to make sure that people don't breach the cost cap is to start taking away championship points. Take away championship points, either take away championship points from the constructors championship or take away constructors championship points in the calculation of prize money. So maybe they keep them for the sake of historical records, but you lose them when it comes to accounting for the prize money. Daily, your, your thoughts on this question, like is the current is the current recipe for discipline severe enough or should there be stricter discipline for cost cap breaches? Yeah, I th- I think it should be a little bit stricter, and I like uh, where you're going with that. That for the historical record, that they they keep the points that they have. It's just that whatever the penalty is, that uh, you know th- those points and then the associated dollar figure that goes with it gets deducted from the piece of the pie that that team gets at the end of the year. So you know there, there's obviously some very very big uh, you know pots of cash that can be handed out for for the teams and that's that's why the constructors is such a big deal i think sometimes as fans we get a little bit too invested in oh lewis is going to win this uh, championship or this is max's and wouldn't it be nice if charles could uh, to throw his hat in the ring and and challenge for a driver's championship but i you know i think when it comes to the teams themselves it's the it's it's the constructors championship that is the more attractive uh, of the two because that is the reflection of the the, the bigger team 
effort, right? From the, the team principal, right down to the pers- person in the machine shop that are making some of these uh, and building some of these small pieces to the people that uh, do the less, say, not the Formula One related activities, the people that work in the accounting and the front office and places like that. I mean, it really is truly a team effort. And it would, it certainly would sting if, uh, if they were to do something like that, I, th- I think that's a very interesting uh, proposal you've come up with there, Mark. Thank you, thank you. Okay, <laughs> I, as, as, I, as I was saying, as I was saying that, though, I just thought, you know, the reality is, if you're Ferrari, Mercedes, or Red Bull, would that even be sufficient? Ultimately, right. like, would would having would ha- losing some of that prize money even be sufficient? Would it matter? Because if you win a championship and and you get the windfall of cash from that influx of sponsors like would it would it even matter if you lost 10 or 20 million dollars like maybe that's a small price to pay so maybe ultimately it just has to be a deduction of constructors points and and maybe you know what you're you 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 possibly compromise your ability to win or retain a, a championship the other thing i'll add on this too because i i just think this topic is so good is you got to you got to be able to calculate the cost cap you got to be able to ca- calculate and distribute the cost cap certificates before the beginning of the subsequent season. Like last year, the fact that we were talking about cost cap certificates throughout the summer and the early fall for the 2021 season is is a non-starter for me. It becomes a distraction. They've got to find a way that they can account for all the financials in the off season and clear the teams before winter winter testing starts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, remember last fall when they were going to release those certificates and like, remember it got delayed, what, like three, four times? I've almost lost count before they actually got, uh, you know, those were, you know, disseminated and made public knowledge, right? It was was a little bit uh, kind of of crazy. Okay, so why don't we jump into some of the uh, the stories here? So the first one comes uh, via Oliver Harden over at uh, planetf1.com. And this is uh, conclusions from the uh, from the Australian uh, Grand Prix. So the first uh, first one is welcome to the era of drive to survive red flags. Uh, let's move along to the to the next uh, the the next one here. We can pick a couple of uh, fun ones here. Is F one's boom built uh, to survive another era of uh, one driver domination? That's that's an interesting one. Um, you know Ferrari when your luck runs out or where your luck's out. Oh boy, where do we start with a Ferrari? And an Albon crash reveals the effort required to make uh, Williams competitive. And well, those are those are basically the the, the subtitles, the topics that uh, Oliver's uh, you know chewed over in this uh, this article. Yeah, I think I think the one that I really wanted to tackle was that concept of whether Australia was an illusion, and and that was kind of who I was referencing a couple of minutes ago when I was talking back to the fact that in some ways, in hindsight, Brazil last year was really an illusion. And Oliver makes a really great point about the fact that that race win in Brazil may have been what hardened Mercedes' opinion that the zero-pod concept was the right direction to move the team. They may have doubled down on it because of that, which of course led them to where they are. And what he kind of cautions in this article is that that almost might be the risk that is the outcome of this this race weekend that hey the the track the degradation the cooler temperatures and the fact that it's a high downforce car at a track that's suitably equipped for high downforce uh formula 1 cars like maybe all of those ingredients together ultimately created 
this illusion that Mercedes is in a better place than they are. So I thought that was useful. I don't know that we really need to talk about that. Uh, but the other one is really just about this concept. And this is probably the one that we want to talk about, but the era of drive to survive and, and red flags. And you know, you've been watching Formula One for an eternity like I have. And this whole concept of frequent red flags and restarts is is pretty novel but the fact that we are openly and transparently engineering race conclusions to ensure that races don't conclude behind a safety car and that we do have red flag restarts late in the race is is really interesting and he talks about the fact that Pat Simmons of course the former technical director at Renault who now has a fairly prominent role at 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 Formula One at the FOM group has uh, very specifically been one of the folks that's helped to engineer this outcome. And he says in all of our talks here, he says, F1's move to post red flag standing restarts was announced a month after Simmons' arrival, and it was a rule change made with good intentions over recent years has been exploited to concoct grandstand finishes. Almost inconceivably, the sport missed its last opportunity for a drive to survive red flag when Daniel Ricciardo's McLaren stopped within sight of the checkered flag at Monza last September, and the outcry media and fans on that occasion, all are complicit, ensured that the next opportunity would not be wasted, which brings us to the Australia 2023 Grand Prix, a race ultimately defined by two highly suspect FIA stewards calls, such as the luck of faith that FIA, <laughs> F1 officials since that night in Abu Dhabi that has become difficult to take decisions at face value without speculating about some ulterior motive. Was the red flag for Alex Albon's crash really to clear gravel from the track or was it to push the race a little farther back as the sun started to rise over Europe? Was the debris from Kevin Magnussen's meeting with Concrete Barry at turn to nothing a safety car couldn't have handled? No, but coming within six laps of the finish, it once again gave the F1 a chance to choose the path of show over sport. Suddenly, having already won the Grand Australian Grand Prix, Max Verstappen had to go out and win it again with another, his third race restart. My friend, maybe that's the one that we talk about a little bit because our show was cut short a little bit on Sunday because we were both challenged with some technical issues. But your perspective, yeah. because you've been watching forever, so you're conditioned to, hey, a race might end behind a safety car, and that's just the way it is. But now we're in this world where, hey, with six laps left and with the race decided, like the race was decided, it was going to be a Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, and Fernando Alonso conclusion that they fought, they battled, they'd earned those positions. And all of a sudden, Magnussen clips the wall, his car shreds, there's carbon fiber everywhere. They red flagged the race. And all of a sudden, all three of those drivers have to re-earn what they'd possibly already earned. What do you think? Like red flags that late? Are, are you feeling it or do you prefer the traditional way of deciding a late Grand Prix? Yeah, I've kind of gone back and forth on this one over the past couple of days since the race uh, finished. And I think ultimately where I'm landed on this one is that uh, even though in most circumstances, I would, uh, you know, I would like to see the finish behind the safety car. But at this point, like you say, the race was decided. It was like there was only a couple of laps till the end of this one. And I, I wouldn't have had a problem to do it. Like, I, I honestly thought that maybe by the time that they'd red flagged, it was like, are, are we coming up at the two hour? hard cutoff time i have no idea what it ran in, in in total race time like if they got close to that 120 minutes or not so maybe that uh, th that that thought is uh, irrelevant but you know when you were just sort of talking about this sort of like drive to survive sort of like dramatic you know finish and the maybe there, there's some sort of desire to have these dramatic finishes uh, to races is like 
did we miss the memo on this? I, I don't recall like this be being like a thing, right? It's just like, there's like, it just sort of feels like this, um, you know, that this almost made for TV ending exactly. is kind of exactly baked into the equation, right? And I don't think it really needs to be that way. Sure, it like it 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 goes, it works well for Drive to Survive. But remember when we sat down um, what is about six weeks uh, six weeks ago with Seth and you know coming at it from his his background in TV and all that, and he kind of said that, you know, and I thought it was a really, really great point. He said that I don't know if DTS fans are necessarily Formula One fans. Like he that he was didn't he say something along the lines? And sorry, Seth, if I'm you know butchering your thoughts and words. Whereas that that uh, that there's also Formula One fans that are also DTS fans, but they're not sort of mutually exclusive things, right? You know, do, am I making sense with that, Mark? Like, yeah, what, what do you I hear think? you. Yeah, you know. I, I hear you completely. I'm, I'm still, I'm still a little mixed up on, on my feelings here because, on the one hand, selfishly as a consumer of an entertainment product that is F1, that mm-hmm. that race re- restart was thrilling, like it was edge of my seat, and, and again, we knew what the outcome was going to be, and maybe that was part of it too. Was the, the race was so understandably over and Max was so far in the lead that a race restart with two laps left or whatever it was injected an immediate sense of uncertainty in the outcome. And there was a sense that anything could happen. And that was thrilling. That was thrilling. And maybe like you, it took a little bit of time to sober up and kind of think through the ramifications, which really was what was the point of the prior 50 laps? Like, what was the point of all of the work that Max and Fernando and Lewis did if that can all be upended so quickly when there's an alternative? Like, it didn't have to be a red flag restart. It could have just been a safety car. You're going to bunch up the field. You know, Max is going to be able to lead the procession. He's going to be able to take off. You finish it, and it's probably going probably gonna to end up similar to this. But it didn't have to be a red flag. And again, I'm all for safety. And if you need to red flag, the the race for safety reasons like i believe they did with albon so be it but yeah the more i think about it it's like did did that magnuson crash really warrant a red flag was the catch fence damaged like was was there so much debris on the track that they needed to bring everyone into the pits and then ultimately we get this we get this restart which again selfishly as an entertainment consumer was thrilling like i i was shouting and screaming i was dancing all around and my wife was coming home and i brought upstairs and we watched it together but at the same time, that could have been accomplished through a safety car, which probably would have been more respectful and fair of the effort that all of the teams had put in. Because I'm not even talking necessarily just about Max and Lewis and Alonso. You look at the Alpines, that the Alpine, like Alpine were in a good double points finishing position, and they ultimately end up with nothing. And you you look at Carlos Sainz, like, hey, he was in a points finishing position and he ends up with nothing. And that was all a result of the chaos and mayhem that unfolded on that race restart because everyone had ice cold tires. So as as I've sobered up as the week has progressed, I, I'm beginning to become very leery of these late red flag restarts if it's specifically for the entertainment factor when a safety car could have served the same purpose. Yeah, I, I think you've uh, completely nailed the nailed it there, Mark. When you said they sure it was exciting, but was it necessary? I, I think that I think we've uh, you know, 
I think we've nailed it uh, right there. You know, just sort of building on what you're saying, uh, you know, Max Verstappen, he said that he thinks that race uh, control were the people that we should all be pointing the finger at for all the chaos, the incidents that we saw at the uh, the the end there after the the standing restart. So he felt that uh, you know they, they 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 could have been avoided if they had a rolling restart. Uh, Max had to say, "quote I think it's quite clear. I just didn't understand why we needed a red flag." Um, I think if you would have uh, had a safety car, then it was just a normal rolling start. We wouldn't have had all these shunts and then you have a normal finish. So they created the problems themselves at the end of the day. I mean, I don't think that there's anything you know controversial about what, uh, what, what Max is saying. And I think he's basically said it in a di- you know, slightly different context than you, Mark was that, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was exciting, but was it, was it completely necessary? So that seems to be a bit of uh, the theme there. Okay. Well, let's, um, move along to the next one so um let's talk about this so apparently you'll remember like there was at one point in the race there was a discussion about uh, you know a breach and starting procedure so max uh, it was really forward in his uh, start uh, or his grid start was within the formula one rules do you want to try and explain why definitely. what's going on with this one? Yeah, sure. definitely. So okay. this was this was a story that blew up. Um, this was a story that blew up on social media subsequent to the conclusion of the Grand Prix, and the controversy was that in light of Fernando Alonso's penalty earlier this season and Esteban Ocon's penalty earlier this season. Max Verstappen's car at the final race restart with the light dwindling and long shadows on the ground, his his race restart or the positioning of his car on that race restart seemed to be awfully far forward. And if you're sitting in the grandstand overlooking the race circuit and looking into the garages, Max Verstappen's front left tire was on the white line of the box. Like he was on the line and he was significantly farther forward in that box than were any of the other drivers within view. And of course, a lot of people, again, in light of the Fernando penalty and in light of the Esteban Ocon penalty, um, started, started screaming murder that, Hey, why wasn't there a penalty? Why wasn't there a penalty? And ultimately a a few people, including Jonathan Noble over at motorsport.com helped clarify the matter that ultimately the drivers can be as far forward or as far to the side within the box as they want, as long as no part of the contact patch. So that is the rubber surface of the tire. As long as no portion of the contact patch of the tire touches the tarmac outside of those white lines. So you can position your car as far forward as you want or as far left to right as you want, but the contact patch of your tire cannot be outside of those white lines. If it is, it's a penalty. If you're inside, if you're on or inside those white lines, you're okay. Now, the top-down view of Max's car is a little less suspicious because if you look at it from the top down, it was actually only his front left tire that was even on the white line. His front right tire wasn't. And it was because he was angling his car as far forward and as far to the right as he possibly could to head off a possible attack from Lewis Hamilton, who was of course starting on the front row to his right. But ultimately it was a lot of, again, it was a learning opportunity. And it's something I think a lot of F1 fans learned, which is, hey, that's fine. Be far left or as far forward as you want to be. You just can't have a portion of your contact patch outside of that white line. 
Yeah, interesting, right? Okay, uh, let's uh, talk about the next one. So apparently, and I, I didn't catch this at the time, so apparently when uh, Magnuson had his incident at the end of the uh, the Grand Prix there, that kind of was the the, the genesis moment of all the, the chaos of uh, that, that we saw the, to just get those last several laps of the race done so we could get to the tre- checkered flag. Apparently, there was a fan that was injured uh, off a bit of a debris that uh, came off of uh, K-Mag's uh, car. I actually didn't know that this uh, this had happened. So um, he, like we talked about, I mean, he hit the wall, the the, the tire carcass uh, came off. And uh, you know, fortunately, the, the person that was hit by the debris uh, was um, was not, uh, you know, seriously hurt. So there was a quote uh, from the uh, the Australian Grand Prix uh, promoter. And uh, the, let's see, let's find it here. The quote was, um, uh, we ac- uh, actually coincidentally had one of our engineering staff there who saw it. And it anecdotally would appear that, uh, debris carbon fiber for the wheel hub has shot 20 meters or so up in the air so about 60 feet so you know odd you know plus or minus uh, shot up landed down and lacerated a gentleman's arm our people were aware of the incident it looks as uh, uh, as if it was a freak one-off because you can't necessarily have the debris fences going 20 meters into the air the debris fences are consistent with the height uh, in height around the world we're compliant in our fi regulations but like everything in motorsport you do debriefs at the end of the event and see what you can do to improve i hope the guy is okay a reminder that safe is uh, the paramount when it comes to formula one end quote and that was a uh, quote from uh let's see from uh that's the australian grand prix corporation ceo and andrew westacott so i, I can, never heard can this i add one thing to that yeah sure so please, i i only did means. because i saw the photo of the so the individual in all the photos was smiling and he had he had he had some blood running down his forearm and, and he's going to be fine. Everything's great. But in the photos, he was actually holding what appears to be the remaining portion of the barrel of Kevin Magnuson's wheel. So oh. it, it looks like, as we know, the tire separated, but it looks like a portion of the barrel of the wheel sheared off from the rest of the, the structure cleared the catch fence and that's what ultimately led to the laceration of his arm but what's really interesting about this is my understanding was that these wheels were purely carbon fiber and this looks very much to be metal and the reason it looks like it's metal is if you've ever if you've ever spent time with carbon fiber carbon fiber has certain properties and certain characteristics and one of the characteristics that carbon fiber is not is plasticky in the sense that it can be bent and manipulated in significant angles before it ultimately stresses and breaks. This wheel clearly looks like a piece of metal because it's bent and deformed in so many different directions. Carbon fiber tends to crack and it tends to splinter uh, very much like, yeah, like you you get it. But this wheel appeared to be metal. So um, Bryson Sullivan and a few other people had caught this as well on social media. So I'm trying to get a better sense because I always understood that the wheels being supplied by BBS to all the teams, it's a common component, but that they were carbon fiber. And whatever this, whatever it was, if it wasn't the barrel of the wheel, it was clearly metal, not carbon fiber. So is that person going to be that guy at parties who shows up to show off his cool scar in his I arm? I would. Wouldn't you? And then people are like, whoa, yeah, how did you, you get that? Uh, like, where did that scar come from? He pulls out, you know, the piece of the wheel that, well, this came off of Kevin Magnuson's ass at the 2023 Australian Grand Prix. So, you know, maybe he's going to do the rounds yeah. the, on, on the party scene. Okay. One, yeah, go one ahead, other quick please. thing to add before we move on from the 
the Australian Grand Prix is we would be remiss, and I think we talked about this briefly, we would be remiss to talk about or to not talk about the fact that there was a very ugly and unfortunate track invasion that happened far too quickly that Albert Park, like select Grand Prix on the calendar, allow fans onto the track in a safe manner following the pitting of all of the cars after the final lap. Um, unfortunately, fans ultimately breached the racetrack two or 300 meters out from the pit lanes. So somewhere past turn one, there were tr- fans seen on the grassy side of the track and climbing the safety fence and the catch fences while there were still tracks on the car. And like you and I talked about last weekend, um, the race organizers were summoned by the FIA stewards and the FIA in general. Um, there could possibly be fines or sanctioning because obviously they were extremely unhappy about this. And then the other piece that I thought was also very, very interesting is fans were able to access Kevin Magnuson's car when it was on the crane after the marshals had removed it from the track. And what's really problematic about this is the Kevin Magnuson car, the Haas, was in a unsafe condition, meaning that the battery was fully charged and there was an electrical discharge waiting to happen. So the car could have been incredibly dangerous to the touch if somebody had approached it and touched the wrong component of the car. So Hmm. really bad news that the fans were there. They got on the track. It's not a good look for the race organizers. It's not a good look. Um, There was also some video of fans breaking and stealing um, different different pieces of FIA equipment (laughs) and things like that. So hopefully, again, hopefully these very few folks don't, don't overshadow the fact that I'm sure that 99.999% 99.999% of the 440,000 people that were in attendance were wonderfully well-behaved and packed out their garbage and, and tidied up after themselves, but not a good look. And, and Westcott said, as fans would know, it's a synonymous part of Grand Prix racing where there is a controlled, and I emphasize the word controlled, access to the circuit post-race. We see the Monza, we see it here and many other events around the world. Unfortunately, on driver's right, a couple of hundred meters down past the finishing line, a couple hundred meters before turn one, there was an uncontrolled ingress of people and patrons onto the grass verges, and a couple of people went onto the asphalt. Myself, my general manager of operations and other met with the FIA and the stewards last night. The stewards quite rightly are going to conduct an investigation of the cause of this. We work every year to allow the fans to access the track at the end of the race after the cars have passed. This was clearly a breach of what is a very robust protocol, a protocol that's been developed and improved every year and a protocol that we sit down with officials from Motorsport Australia and the security providers, engineering providers and Victoria Police. And we're not only to do top exercises, but we do simulations out on track. Something hasn't gone quite right, and that investigation is yeah, already okay, started. Okay, well, good to know. Hey, uh, let's uh, jump into another uh, quick break, because we're going to talk about another, another money story. We'll do that in a moment, so don't go away. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. So another one comes a uh, story that uh, comes from uh, Planet F1, and this is uh, from writer Michelle Foster. Apparently, Rocket is suing Williams for $149 million over alleged, what they're calling Rocket, that is, fraudulent statements. So a couple of years ago, Rocket adorned the side of the Williams cars. They're one of their main title sponsors. Um, so they they walked away, you know, very, very quickly and, you know, somewhat uh, unannounced. They, they had, uh, and well, Williams and Rocket had announced the partnership way back in 2019. It was going to be a three-year deal, which would have just uh, ended at the end of 2022. And it came to an end only just a, a year later when they spontaneously left in May 2020. I guess a lot of the, uh, at, at the time, a lot of speculation had to do a lot with the, 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 the global economic uncertainty in the early days of the pandemic. Anyways, um, 
they just basically said at the time that that you know the the contract was terminated. The former team principal, or was she even team principal? Anyways, uh, Claire Williams, who was the boss at the time, didn't want to really uh, divulge any more information, and uh, but said at the time that uh, that that Williams had met all their contractual uh, obligations, and it was very much a rocket thing that uh, that they were walking away from their sponsorship there. So Williams uh, tried to take or they took legal legal action later on against Rocket for with holding sponsorship uh, payment winning a 26.2 million pound payout in the London Court of International Arbitration uh, Tribunal now a couple years later flip the uh, you know flip this one around rocket are now suing williams uh, again uh, saying that williams made what they're calling fraudulent statements when they brought them on board as a sponsor with the promises of a good car so now uh, rocket are claiming that uh, the what they're saying at the, or at least in regards to the arbitration tribunal, was quote not aware of the fraudulent concealment of statements of material facts by defendants that were not discovered until after the arbitration had concluded. End quote. And then also they've uh, said further. Um, Quote, that uh, we have learned that the car was never capable of performing to the standards that the defendants had guaranteed to the plaintiffs and that the defendants were aware of and concealed this fact. The defendants intentionally and fraudulently concealed the fact that Williams Engineering simply did not have enough money to develop the F1 car. End quote. And then finally, they went on to say, quote, as a direct approximate result of the fraudulent statements made by the defendants, the plaintiffs have suffered a significant financial loss and damage to their goodwill and business reputation and asked for compensation for an amount in the excess of $149,528,550. Now, a couple of things on that. That dollar figure is spookily precise I, I want to know like exactly where they came you know, came up with this uh, number from but you know there, there's a couple of things and of course they're going to be looking at this from from a certain way but you know it's the first one here says that the defendants intentionally and fraudulently concealed concealed pardon me the fact that williams engineering simply did not have enough money to develop the f1 car i mean am i the only one kind of thinking well wasn't that obvious to the rest of us who've been watching Formula One and just knew that this was a team that was plummeting through the race order to the back of the grid sort of post-2016? I mean, they they didn't have the funds to do it. And obviously, that's why they were looking for sponsors to help develop the car. So, you know, uh, yeah. Can I, can I just add? And I know no, I wasn't going to say please. anything, but I totally agree with you that that on the one hand, I was reading this article, and obviously we all have a soft spot for former deputy team principal sure. Claire Williams and her father Frank Williams, and and the history of that team, blah 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 blah. But you and I are sitting here. 800 million miles away from Grove, where the Williams factory is. And both you and I knew in 2018, that team was in total shambles and that Lawrence Stroll was pulling oh, out exactly, all his money yeah, and, and yeah. Lance Stroll was on his way out. And Martini, who was the title sponsor, was walking away from a renewal opportunity. Like both you and I knew they were a total disaster. Like where's the accountability on Rocket for doing their due diligence before they sign up to this agreement? Like <laughs> we all knew none of us were expecting anything from that team. And, and if and it, Remind me too, I think it was even 2019 where Williams showed up late to winter testing because they'd had such a yep. disastrous offseason putting together the team. Like, 
Rocket probably should have knew. And where's your accountability on a due diligence? And ultimately, look, they walked away and they got sued and and uh, Williams recovered a little bit of the funding. But then again, Rocket also has a bit of a kind of a questionable history in motorsports too. Because remember last year, they were sponsoring the Tatiana Calderon That's car right. in, in the Indy yes. Series. And they walked away from yeah. that sponsor mid-season and she lost her seat as well. And of course now moved, made the move back to Formula 2. But they have some, they have an interesting history in Formula 1. Yeah, yeah. General, I mean, sorry. obviously not uh, not as shady as uh, Rich Energy, which is <laughs> which, <laughs> you know, which yeah, uh, yeah, you, yeah. Know, you dived into uh, several weeks ago with Alanis and Elizabeth uh, Blackstock, in uh, a, a very memorable conversation that you had with the two of them. I mean, they're they're kind of like the 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 very very you know low bar, I guess you could say, like of uh, or or the high bar for shadiness but you know rocket i guess kind of like falls somewhere in the middle but yeah it, it, i don't know i i just feel that when you know that sort of read out loud it just kind of like i feel a lot of what they're saying seemed to be common knowledge that this wasn't a team with a lot of money it was a team that needed uh, desperately money to invest in the car to develop it and uh, I, I don't know i i mean obviously it's a, a lot more complicated than that but i i just feel that I just feel like a lot of that was already out there. We already just, uh, you know, you know, anyways, yes. Daily, please, daily. Please. can I do the next story? Can I do the Absolutely. next story, please? Okay, 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 okay. So this has now been widely reported, but I love this concept. So Formula One teams have reached an agreement on a new race weekend formula. And I'm reading here from racingnews365.com. F1 teams have reached an agreement on potential changes to the sprint race weekend format with the aim of implementing the changes in time for the Azerbaijan Grand Prix in Baku. Following discussions on changes to the sprint race weekends, the Formula One teams have reached an agreement on amendments to the Azerbaijan Grand Prix weekend format. Prior to the Australian Grand Prix, it was confirmed that discussions were taking place to change the schedule for the next event in Baku, which is the first sprint race weekend of the season. So here is what it's going to look like. So all of the teams mutually unanimously agreed to this change in structure. So starting with Azerbaijan, this is what the sprint race weekend will look like in calendar 2023. So on Fridays, we are going to have free practice one. So that is the only practice session of the race weekend. Teams are free to tinker, free to tailor, free to get their setup in place. Immediately after free practice on Friday, there will be a qualifying session that is only for the Sunday Grand Prix. So again, Friday, you have a free practice session in the morning, and then you have Grand Prix qualifying in the afternoon. On Saturday in the morning, you have sprint race qualifying followed by the sprint race in the afternoon. So the cool thing here is you have a dedicated qualifying session for both the Grand Prix and the sprint race. So again, Friday, free practice, Grand Prix qualifying, Saturday, sprint race qualifying, followed by the sprint race. And then on Sunday, you get the Grand Prix. So they haven't finalized the details of how the sprint race qualifying session is going to look like. It sounds like it's still going to be a Q1, Q2, and Q3 session, although they might shorten the sessions to tighten it up a little bit. Um, they haven't really talked about what tire allocations and things like this are going to look like for the weekend, but I am overjoyed by this because I have been hugely disdainful of the idea that the sprint race outcome should in any way affect 
the order for the Grand Prix that there should always be a qualifying session that either sets the order for both or that you have a separate qualifying session for both. But on very short notice, well, I guess it's not really short notice. The teams have got three weeks to wrap their heads around this. But I'm very, very, very excited about this as a possible sprint race weekend format. And again, the cool thing is we introduced this back in 2021. They've tinkered with it. They played with it. They continue to revise it. I think this is a, a, another good step in putting together a really robust bust entertaining weekend that introduces a degree of fairness. So daily, this might be the, because this is fairly breaking news, this might be your first time seeing this, but initial impressions on what that structure could look like for a Grand Prix weekend. I like it. <laughs> You're pulling a Hamilton. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start right. turning <laughs> off lights. That's the show for tonight. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll joke you aside. I, I'm really excited about this too, because, you know, if you go back a couple of years ago when you and I were sitting here in anticipation to see the, the new sprint race format introduced and adopted into Formula One, that we were really, really excited to see it happen. And then when it you know, it became a thing. It didn't really live up to our expectations. And we've kind of mulled it over for, you know, months and years, uh, you know, since that first, uh, the, the first time that we saw it, it's just like, well, what can they do to increase the spectacle, how to make it more worthwhile? So, you know, some of the su- you know suggestions that I've read and I've heard about and some of the ones that, um, that, that, that you and I have talked about, or we've talked with Tim over time is just like, yeah, then maybe it's something to it, but nothing like this that is really, captured my imagination let's put it that way i like i actually feel excited about this like i think there's some real potential to it so maybe like you say that uh, that they you know they they have to tighten up each one of those q1 q2 and uh, q3 um you know sessions to make them tighter more compact i mean not like there's an excess of time to begin with but that's that's very tantalizing but i like how there's a qualifying session just for the race and then a qualifying session just for the sprint race i i think that just makes sense because the sprint race kind of it's supposed to be its own thing and i think by doing this you know you you tick a couple of boxes that you have the qualifying just for the sprint race so the people that want to go out and maybe compete to race hard for those points maybe there's a little bit more more emphasis on that whereas to those teams and drivers that are maybe looking towards the bigger hall of points on Sunday, you know, you know, there's different ways that kind of like different strategies get, uh, get employed with that. And, and just like speaking it out and just kind of mulling it over here as uh, you know, on, on the podcast, I think is, uh, you know, I, I think it's, at least captures the imagination and um, I'm excited to see where it goes. But like you say, I mean, just like three or four weeks to kind of really polish this thing up and get it to a workable format seems like a bit of an undertaking, but we've, we've seen in the past that when the teams decide to actually cooperate and do things together that they literally can move mountains in a, in a very short period of time, but I'm excited about it. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it uh, debut. It, it also gives you an awful lot of entertainment value because all of a sudden there's three must-watch events. So again, I probably should have provided a little bit of context on this, but last year you would have had free practice one, you would have had qualifying, and then on the Saturday you would free practice two, and then you would have had the sprint race, and then on Sunday you would have had the Grand Prix, so you had two practice sessions. So basically we're swapping out one of the practice sessions for a second qualifying event. But the problem last year was that second 
practice session was after qualifying. So the teams were already in park Fermi conditions, which means that really the only benefit of that practice session was putting the drivers out there to familiarize, familiarize themselves with the car because they couldn't tinker with the setup anymore because the setup had already been locked in because they've been through a qualifying session. So that, that whole practice session, that FP2 was a total waste. So now all of a sudden there's a ton of value. Now, of course, the, the challenge to the sprint race weekend is teams have to dial in their setup with one with one practice session. They got to get it right the first time. You get one practice session, you're straight into qualifying, and that setup is locked in for the weekend. So they got to get it right. And again, in Brazil, I, I think you could argue that maybe one of the reasons that Mercedes was so successful was because Red Bull wasn't, and it was because Red Bull clearly hadn't dialed in their setup correctly. And of course, there was all that drama with... Uh, with Max and uh, his teammate. <laughs> but that aside, one of the issues was they just hadn't dialed in their setup correctly. So now you're sitting in a situation where there could be a lot more unpredictability in a sprint race weekend because teams just have less time to dial in the optimal setup for their car for that track that weekend. Yeah, in those I'm, I'm excited. I'm, I'm glad to see that there's uh, some movement on this and that finally after... What this is uh, the third season now with the sprint uh, sprint races that it's uh, it's obviously taken some time to figure out that we we might actually get to a format that will be like you say add more value to the uh, the, the weekend experience and also be you know maybe uncork the potential that this uh, this format has always had that we just haven't seen uh, materialize uh, before now okay uh, the next one uh, next story here comes uh, via the uh, formula1.com website so the new f1 academy series is to align with the formula 1 calendar starting from the 2024 season uh, this makes a lot of sense um, formula 1 ceo stefano domenicali has announced that the f1 ca- academy the all new female driver category aimed at developing and preparing young female talents to progress to higher levels of uh, competition will be part of formula one weekends in 2024 well of course it should be and i'm just glad that even though it's going to take another year to get this thing going that they do realize that this this needs to have some teeth to it there there has to be some meaningful link and why not put it as part of the support card or tickets for the rest of the the the, the racing weekend in addition to formula one i think this is a a great thing Uh, mark your thoughts yeah, I totally agree. Also, I'm just super excited because there's two drivers in this series this year that have been on our program, which is super, super cool. Both of them, unbelievable young drivers, wonderful personalities, super charismatic. So it's cool that we're going to have two drivers that we can openly cheer for this year, both of whom should be on the show again, hopefully this summer if everything goes right. But I totally agree, like for this series to be successful and likewise with the W series, like it's got to be on the F1 ticket because you get so much exposure. You've pre-sold 100,000 and two, three, four hundred thousand tickets over the course of the race weekend. You get the eyeballs on the series at the track, and you get all of that additional TV coverage because all of the camera and the media are already there. Yeah, the absolutely. Race. I think that this uh, just makes a, a lot of sense, and this is uh, something that uh, needed to happen because that is one of the things that uh, you know we've been um, you know been saying, especially like the, the the former W series that we were just like, why can't this like why can't this be a thing, right? So I mean the 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 two drivers that uh, that you're um, you're referring to is uh, Megan Gilks, who's going to be uh, uh, driving for um, uh, Roden Carlin Racing, and then uh, Hamda Al Kubesi, who's driving for MP 
motorsport. So uh, very, very cool. Uh, you know, that, that's exciting. I'm glad to see that uh, that this is coming along in the way that, uh, that, that it should be. Okay, next story here is that Audi has uh, revealed their their opinion, their stance on uh, on customer teams in Formula One. Mark, what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, so basically Audi doesn't want customer teams. <laughs> so based on our, and the reason the story is relevant at all is that based under the current regulations is a, a team who also produces a power unit is obligated to supply at least one team if a team requests. So currently, Mercedes is supplying almost half the field and Ferrari is supplying a couple of teams. Honda is supplying two teams, but Renault doesn't supply any. But if Renault was asked by a team on the grid today, they would be obligated to supply units. They wouldn't be obligated to supply power units to a second or a third or a fourth team, but they would be obligated under the current regulations to supply at least one. So we don't know what the regulations are going to be for 2026, but Audi's been asked, and I think their general response right now is, hey, our motivation, our interest, our focus is on developing our works team and developing our power unit. And this article speaks, and this is from Sam Cooper, friend of the show on planetf1.com, speaks to the fact that they are well down the path of developing this power unit. They have a single cylinder version, and ultimately, of course, it's going to be a six-cylinder version, but they have a single cylinder version of the power unit on the test bench. Um, they've run it through a gamut of tests and they're actively continuing to build up their organization and recruit from within internal divisions at Audi and by recruiting and pilfering staff from other Formula One teams in the UK. So again, interesting story that right now they're not looking for customer teams. They're not looking for that additional income that would come from by being able to contract a, a customer team and sell them power units. Right now, they're focused only on their works team and only getting their power unit off the bench, which I think is probably strategic, the, the right place for them. Yeah, to be at absolutely. This yeah, interesting uh, to hear. And I mean, again, like just uh, generally speaking, this whole Audi project is something that uh, I just find incredibly exciting to watch because you don't see an OEM come into to Formula One in, in this capacity and you know very very often so anything that they say or do just from me personally just gets a, a little bit more you know I, I get eyes on it or listen you know wherever I'm consuming it it just gets uh, you know consuming more of my of my attention so 2026 can certainly you know well, it doesn't need to come too quickly because that will just mean that we're we're three years older, and then and, you know at the age we're at now, that really kind of starts to count. Anyhow, we'll we'll move along to the to the next story, and that is apparently that um, the Italian police have uh, oh, I've kind of kind of moved ahead here. Um, so the Italian police have arrested four people for stealing Charles Leclerc's watch. And this kind of goes back to uh, last year when uh, Charles was uh, approached by a couple of uh, people uh, at an Italian seaside resort. They asked uh, for, for a selfie and uh, his watch uh, was taken. So apparently the watch that uh, that uh, Charles was uh, uh, wearing, it's similar to another Richard Mille uh, RM67-02 uh, that was sold a couple of years ago for 2.1 million Swiss francs. Ranks about two point two million dollars, and um, 
so I mean, Richard Mila is a Ferrari sponsor, and um, Charles, you know, wears that watch or the one that was uh, stolen. He wore it all the time on the podium and media things and stuff like that. And it's similar too because Lando had a, a Richard Mila watch uh, stolen at Euro 2020 a couple of years. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, yeah. His was worth only you know a paltry fifty two thousand dollars by comparison. But I mean, that's just uh, crazy when it comes to the can, world. Can I add a little bit of juice? Sure, please. Juiciness to the story. So I, I learned today, and some of the security footage that captures these moments have been released now that uh, now that they've made some arrests. But like you described, I, I guess he was in this wonderful seaside town, and he was approached by two helmeted folks on a scooter, um, who ultimately, in the moment of getting a selfie, managed to abscond with his watch. And it turns out that in the moments before. Charles Leclerc was being followed by a gray SUV and the gray SUV was tracking him and presumably signaled to the two folks on the scooter to approach him and to get the watch. Uh, the two folks on the scooter later rendezvoused with the gray SUV and handed off the watch. But what's really remarkable about the story is unbeknownst to all of us, Charles Leclerc gave chase to the scooter felons in his Ferrari and actually oh, watched the, wow. pres- the, the alleged transaction between the scooter drivers and the SUV drivers um, take place. And it's believed that it was in that moment that he was able to get the license plate of the gray SUV, which helped investigators ultimately track down the, the thieves, the felons in this case. So he, uh, he immediately recognized that his watch was gone, knew exactly what had happened and gave chase in his Ferrari. How dramatic is that? He saw the exchange take place, but presumably, obviously for his own personal safety, did not approach, but he did get the license plate and he sent that on to the police. And ultimately they were able to make some arrests. And I think there was an article somewhere saying that in one of the homes of one of the individuals that was arrested, they did find two extremely high-end, extremely expensive watches but it's not currently known if one of those was in fact Charles Leclerc. Yeah, that, that's crazy. I'm uh, looking here on the uh, on on the web, and I uh, see here Richard Mille RM67. Um, it's listed here on uh, Chrono24.ca for 404,000 Canadian dollars. And um, but the good thing is if you got 400 grand to drop on a watch, you get free shipping, which, you know, just seems to be uh, you know, because you look at some of these other ones, you're paying, you know, 500 large for one of these watches and they're going to ding you 1300 bucks for shipping, but you know, if you shop around daily, how would how would they even ship it? Like if you're buying literally a five hundred thousand dollar watch, like what does that look like? Do they just drop it in the post? Do they give it to a UPS <laughs> driver? Like, like surely somebody is somebody is it is chauffeured to you in the back of a luxury like sixty foot Cadillac with like I can't even imagine what that handoff would look like. Like I'm sorry, but free fifty dollar insured UPS shipping isn't sufficient if I'm dropping five hundred. Yeah, well, on a you watch. know, if, uh, you know, there's thirteen hundred dollars like uh, you know included like in the or you know, on top of that for shipping costs that better be delivered by by somebody and you know no disrespect to your fedex or pure later or amazon drivers i mean they're all hard-working people but you know i'm thinking kind of somebody like in a tuxedo you know kind of like the the like the, the white exactly. the, the white totally gloves agree. and things like that and you kind of yeah. like like the you know baskets yeah. of rose petals being thrown you know some so yeah <laughs> you know, we can sit here and joke about this because 
obviously neither you well let, let's not say we don't you know maybe if we put our money together and then i get the mon the watch monday wednesdays and fridays and sun maybe sundays we alternate i get it one sunday you get it the week after you know so i, I think that's yep. fair yeah it would necessitate the sale of both of our <laughs> homes because we would both have to simultaneously cash out on all of our earned equity. Uh, our family yep. would be homeless, but it would uh, give us the opportunity to wear such a fine piece but, but of friendship. But I, I, I don't know if I would want to sit in on that conversation where we come into the room where our, both of our wives are and say, look we have something to tell you and but <laughs> listen my wife's on the verge of me of divorcing me every day of the week already like it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't too take much, much to yeah, push her yeah. over the edge i think i think my wife yeah. would probably feel very much the, the 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 same way so maybe we should cut our losses and just kind of stop right here before we do you know agreed, we say agreed. or do the wrong uh, wrong thing here um just one other thing here. There was another story, and I've accidentally uh, closed it here. Uh, it was another one just about Audi recruiting people. Uh, maybe you still have that one handy, if you could just... Yeah, uh Audi has recruited, allegedly, about 50 technicians already for its aggressive recruitment drive and, and project. So CEO, CEO of Audi Formula One Racing, Adam Baker, has said they have no concerns about attracting the best talent despite their base being away from the F1 center in the UK. So we talked a little bit about this recently that with the exception of Sauber, Alpha, I'm already calling them <laughs> Sauber instead of, instead of Alfa Romeo, but with the exception of Alfa Romeo, Sauber, Alfa Tauri, and, and Ferrari, all of the teams are based in the UK. And that makes attack, attracting top talent really easy because the quality of life in the UK is really good and the access to services and supply chains and blah, 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 blah. It's, like, it's the right place to base your team. But it sounds more and more as though Audi is recruiting and bringing all of its top talent to Nürburgring in, in Germany. And presumably, I have to think that the conversation is about where they're ultimately going to base this team. So we know we know exactly where where Sauber is based, but the engine development and the engine manufacturing for this project will take place in Germany. I, I'm now beginning to wonder more and more whether they move the entire outfit, whether they move the Sauber team to Germany and base the team there. But ultimately, Adam Baker is very, very confident that despite the fact that most of the teams are based in the UK and that's seen as a competitive advantage when it comes to recruiting and retaining top talent, that they feel they're in a really good place. Says Adam Baker, regarding recruitment, what we need to recognize is that Formula One project for Audi Sport here in Newburgh, it's an important transformation project. This means we have benefited from taking almost 200 highly qualified staff over from within Audi Sport into F1. So this is obviously a huge boost for our ramp up phase. Here in the region, we also have access to literally thousands of tech experts who are involved in the automotive industry here working for Audi or for our suppliers. But to ensure we'll be competitive in 2026, we want to accelerate our learning phase as much as possible. And part of that strategy is an aggressive recruitment program. So far, we've contracted around 50 technical experts to join us here in Germany, including from some of our competitors. Um, he continues. I think recruitment is always a challenge. Part of that challenge is obviously if the personnel need to make a decision to move country with their family, that is certainly a consideration. But at the same time, it can also be seen as a disadvantage. If you're able to change employer without moving, then the risk of potentially leaving is obviously higher. The Audi F1 team will be on the grid from 2026 and beyond, which yeah, obviously yeah. we know. So um, just kind of builds on that story that we talked about a couple minutes ago about their ongoing investment and their aggressive drive to ramp up the team. But it looks like most of their efforts so far are being based in, in Germany. But it's also interesting that there have been a 
able to pool and pull talent away from Audi Sport who would have been working on other projects and commit them to the F1 project. So they're not entirely dependent on recruiting talent from other teams or developing internally. They've already got some very skilled people at their disposal. Very, very cool. And finally, we got a mini MotoGP corner. It's so many, I'm not even going to queue up the, the, the music because number one, I don't have it ready, but it, it sounds like Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, that's all I ask. I sh- ask you to show up five or six nights a week to record our six times weekly podcast and to have my music ready. But that's okay. So a couple <laughs> of cool stories this week. One, and this one actually came out on on April the 1st, April Fool's Day, and I ignored it thinking that it was total nonsense. But allegedly, Dorna and Liberty have spoken. So Dorna is the MotoGP equivalent of Liberty, it's commercial rights holder, but allegedly Dorna and Liberty have spoken about having a Formula One and MotoGP weekend. So having both Grand Prix happen on the same date on the same track. Apparently, this won't happen till subsequent or following 2027, so possibly 2028 or 2029 at the earliest, but apparently conversations have happened. Again, I'm sure that Liberty and Dorna have all sorts of conversations about all sorts of things because they want to improve the commercial the commercial viability of their products. But apparently, Dorna and Liberty have spoken. So the thought would be that you would have a Grand Prix weekend, which would see two Grand Prix on the Sunday, a MotoGP race followed by a Formula One race. The Saturday would have qualifying for, for, for MotoGP. It would have qualifying for F1. So it would be, for somebody like me that's a fan of both sports, it would be absolute heaven. I think logistically, it would be incredibly difficult having the FIA and the FIM operate on the same track on the same weekend. But apparently there's conversations, which is which is pretty cool. Uh, a couple of other quick updates. We had last weekend, we didn't talk about it, but the Argentina Grand Prix. So a couple of quick updates from that. Um, Marco Bezzecchi finished first, winning the Argentinian Grand Prix. Finishing second was Johan Zarco of Prima Premac Racing. And finishing third, Alex Marquez on the podium. That was his first podium since 2020 so of course alex marquez is mark marquez's brother he had two second place finishes back to back i think in uh i think in the 2020 season uh, a couple of interesting takeaways from this weekend is again like we've talked about before MotoGP has a sprint race every weekend of the year so every weekend there's a grand prix they also have a sprint race we talked a little bit about this and i even remember comments from daniel ricardo leading into 2021 that there was this real fear that the formula one sprint race could take away from the gravitas the 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 immense i don't know the what makes the essence that makes the formula one grand prix so special and i don't think the sprint race has really done that in formula one but is a hundred percent doing it in moto gp and we're only two sprint races deep but both sprint races have been so unbelievably good as to almost overshadow the the moto gp grand prix that happens on the sunday this last weekend we saw brad binder who was 15th 15th at one point during the sprint race come all the way back in and win the race. So MotoGP season trundles on. Again, it was a smaller grid because we'd had some injuries after the first weekend in Portugal, which was really unfortunate. They're going to continue to have action-packed Grand Prix weekends the rest of the year because they're committed to sprint sprint races on every Saturday of a race weekend. 
But yeah, championship is still completely wide open. It was super cool to see Bezzecchi take a win. The other notable thing about that is that is the first race for the VR46 racing team, which of course uses the Ducati motor and the Ducati chassis. That's interesting because that is the Valentino Rossi-owned team. So even though Rossi isn't racing now, a Rossi-owned team has scored a race victory. Of course, they had a podium in Portugal as well. So Rossi continues to cast a long shadow. I don't know. Is that positive? Negative? I don't know. He continues. His presence continues to be felt in MotoGP, even if he's not on the on the yeah. grid himself. That's it for that's MotoGP cool. corner. My and friend. I think that's all we got for tonight. So thank you very much, uh, one and all, for for checking in. Thank you for downloading, listening to the show, and thank you to one and all for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you enjoy your podcast. And that certainly is the easiest and best way to support us. And uh, if you want to get in touch uh, or if you want to follow us um, on social media, uh, head on over to Twitter at Scooter F One Pod. That's where you can get in touch. Usually, that's Mark that answers. Also, uh, we had um, we got the had spaces going tonight. I think uh, for for a little while, which is cool. And also, if you want to send us uh, an email, by all means, uh, do so. Send us an email at scooteryf1pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy the weekend. Uh, we'll be back on Sunday night with our Sunday night, um, whatever it might take in this, uh, whatever form this week. So we'll be back in a couple of days. Until then, bye for now. <laughs>